0: Part thirty five of the Chronicles of Crime, volume one by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part thirty five. The Countess of Bristol, otherwise the Duchess of Kingston, convicted of bigamy. Part two. Her spirits being soothed by the interview, the Duchess embarked for Dover, landed, drove to Kingston House, and found friends displaying both zeal and a clarity in her cause. The first measure taken was to have the Duchess bailed. This was done before Lord Mansfield, the Duke of Newcastle, Lord Mount Stewart, Mr. Glover, and other characters of rank attending. The prosecution and consequent trial of the Duchess becoming objects of magnitude, the public curiosity and expectation, were proportionably excited. The Duchess had, through life, distinguished herself, as a most eccentric character. Her turn of mind was original, and many of her actions were without a parallel. Even when she moved in the sphere of amusement, it was in a style peculiarly her own. If others invited admiration by a partial display of their charms at a masquerade, she at once threw off the veil, and set censure at defiance. Thus at midnight assemblies, where Bacchus revelled, and the altars of Venus were encircled by the votaries of love, the Duchess, then Miss Chudley, appeared almost in the unadorned simplicity of primitive nature. The dilemma, therefore, into which she was thrown by the pending prosecution, was, to such a character, of the most perplexing kind. She had already in a manner invited the disgrace, and she now neglected the means of preventing it. Mrs. Craddock, the only existing evidence against her, again personally solicited a maintenance for the remaining years of her life, and voluntarily offered, in case a stipend should be settled on her, to retire to her native village and never more intrude. The offer was rejected by the Duchess, who would only consent to allow her twenty pounds a year, on condition of her sequestering herself in some place near the peak of Derbyshire. This the Duchess considered as a most liberal offer, and she expressed her astonishment that it should be rejected. Under the assurances of her lawyers, the Duchess was as quiet as that troublesome monitor her own heart would permit her to be, and reconciled in some measure to the encounter with which she was about to meet, her repose was most painfully disturbed by an adversary, who appeared in a new and most unexpected quarter. This was the celebrated Foote, the actor, who, having mixed in the first circles of fashion, was perfectly acquainted with the leading transactions of the Duchess's life, and had resolved to turn his knowledge to his own advantage. As in the opinion of Mandeville, private vices are public benefits, so Foote deemed the crimes and vices of individuals lawful game for his wit. On this principle he proceeded with the Duchess of Kingston, and he wrote a piece founded on her life called The Trip to Calais. The scenes were humorous, the character of the Duchess admirably drawn, and the effect of the performance of the farce on the stage would have been that which was most congenial to the tastes of the scandal-mongers of the day, namely to make the Duchess ashamed of herself. The real object of Mr. Foote, however, was one of a nature more likely to prove advantageous to himself. It was to obtain money to secure the suppression of the piece, and with this view he contrived to have it communicated to her grace that the Haymarket Theatre would open with an entertainment in which she was taken off to the life. Alarmed at this, she sent for Foote, who attended with the piece in his pocket, but having been desired to read it, he had not gone far before the character of Lady Kitty Crocodile being introduced, the Duchess could no longer control her anger, and rising in a violent rage, she exclaimed, "'Why, this is scandalous! What a wretch you have made me!' Mr. Foote assured her that the character was not intended to caricature her, even in his serious moments being unable to control his desire to pun, for he left her to infer that it was a true picture, and the Duchess, having taken a few turns about the room, became more composed and requested that the piece might be left for her perusal, engaging that it should be returned by the ensuing evening. The actor readily complied and retired, but the lady being left to consider her own portrait was so displeased with the likeness that she determined, if possible, to prevent its exposure on the stage. The artist had no objection to sell his work, and she was inclined to become the purchaser, but on the former being questioned as to the sum which he should expect for suppressing the peace, he proportioned his expectations to what he deemed the Duchess's power of gratifying them, and demanded two thousand guineas, besides a sum to be paid as compensation for the loss of the scenes which had been painted for the farce, and which were not applicable to any other purpose. The magnitude of the demand, as well it might, staggered the Duchess and having intimated her extreme astonishment at so exorbitant a proposition she expressed a wish that the sum might be fixed at one within the bounds of moderation and reason the actor was positive concluding that as his was the only article in the market he might name his own price but the result was that by demanding too much he lost all a cheque for fourteen hundred pounds was offered the amount was increased to sixteen hundred pounds and a draft on messrs drummond's was actually signed but the obstinacy of the actor was so great that he refused to abate one guinea from his original demand the circumstance might at any other time have passed among the indifferent events of the day and as wholly undeserving of the public notice but those long connected with the duchess and in habits of intimacy felt the attack made on her as directed by a ruffian hand at a moment when she was least able to make resistance. His Grace, the Duke of Newcastle, was consulted. The Chamberlain of the household, the Earl of Hertford, was apprised of the circumstance, and his prohibitory interference was earnestly solicited. He sent for the manuscript copy of the trip to Calais, perused, and censured it. But besides these and other powerful aids, the Duchess called in professional advice. The Sages of the Robe were consulted, and their opinions were that the piece was a malicious libel, and that, should it be represented, a shorthand writer ought to be employed to attend on the night of representation, to minute each offensive passage as the groundwork of a prosecution. This advice was followed, and Foote was intimidated. He denied having made a demand of two thousand guineas, but the Reverend Mr. Foster contradicted him in an affidavit thus defeated in point of fact foote found himself baffled also in point of design the chamberlain would not permit the piece to be represented foote now had recourse to another expedient he caused it to be intimated that it was in his power to publish if not to perform but were his expenses reimbursed and the sum which her grace had formerly offered would do the business he would desist this being communicated to the Duchess, she in this, as in too many cases, asked the opinion of her friends, with a secret determination to follow her own. Foot, finding that she began to yield, pressed his desire incessantly, and she had actually provided bills to the amount of £1,600 which she would have given him but for the Reverend Mr. Jackson, who, being asked his opinion of the demand, returned the answer, "'Instead of complying with it, your grace should obtain complete evidence of the menace and demand, and then consult your counsel whether a prosecution will not lie for endeavouring to extort money by threats. Your grace must remember the attack on the first Duke of Marlborough by a stranger, who had formed a design either on his purse or his interest, and endeavoured to menace him into a compliance.' This answer struck the Earl of Peterborough and Mr. Foster very forcibly as in perfect coincidence with their own opinions, and Mr. Jackson was then solicited to wait on Mr. Foote, Mr. Foster the chaplain of the Duchess, professing himself to be too far advanced in years to enter into the field of literary combat. Mr. Jackson consented to be the champion on the following condition, that the Duchess would give her honour never to retract her determination, nor to let Foote extort from her a single guinea, her Grace, subscribing to this condition, Mr. Jackson, waited on Mr. Foote at his house in Suffolk Street, and intimated to him the resolution to which the Duchess had come. The actor, however, still wished to have matters compromised, and to this end he addressed a letter to the Duchess, which began with stating, that a member of the Privy Council and a friend of Her Grace, by whom he meant the Duke of Newcastle, had conversed with him on the subject of the dispute between them and that for himself he was ready to have everything adjusted this letter afforded the duchess a triumph every line contained a concession and contrary to the advice of her friends she insisted upon the publication of the whole correspondence this circumstance for a time served to turn the current of attention into a new channel but while the public notice was withdrawn from her grace, she felt too heavily the necessity which existed to adopt some course to enable her either to evade or meet the impending danger. Her line of procedure was soon determined upon. She affected an earnest desire to have the trial, if possible, accelerated, while in secret she took every means in her power to evade the measures which her opponents had taken against her. Her conduct in other respects appears to have been strangely inconsistent. An opportunity presented itself which remained only to be embraced to secure her object. It became the subject of a discussion in the House of Lords whether the trial of her grace should not be conducted in Westminster Hall, and the expense which would necessarily be incurred by the country was by many urged as being a burden which ought not to rest upon the public purse. Lord Mansfield, privately desiring to save the Duchess from the disgrace and ignominy of a public trial, strove to avail himself of this objection in her favour, and so great had become the differences of opinion entertained upon the subject, that the withdrawal of the prosecution altogether would have been a matter which would have been considered desirable rather than improper. Here, then, was the critical moment at which the Duchess might have determined her future fate. A hint was privately conveyed to her that the sum of ten thousand pounds would satisfy every expectation, and put an end to the prosecution, and doubts being expressed of the sincerity of the proposal, the offer was made in distinct terms. The Duchess was entreated by her friends to accept the proposition which was made, and so at once to relieve herself, and them, from all fear of the consequences which might result to her, but through a fatal mistaken confidence, either in the legal construction of her case or in her own machinations she refused to accede to the offers which were held out resting assured of her acquittal she resisted every attempt at dissuasion from her purpose of going to trial and she assumed an air of indifference about the business which but ill accorded with the doubtful nature of her position she talked of the absolute necessity of setting out for rome affected to have some material business to settle with the pope and in consequence took every means and urged every argument in her power to procure the speedy termination of the proceedings, as if the regular course of justice had not been swift enough to overtake her. In the midst of her confidence, however, she did not abandon her manoeuvring, but at the very moment when she was petitioning for a speedy trial she was engaged in a scheme to get rid of the principal witness against her. Mrs. Craddock, to whom before she had refused a trifling remuneration, might now have demanded thousands as the price of her evidence. A negotiation was carried on through the medium of a relation of hers, who was a letter-carrier, which had for its object her removal from England, and an interview was arranged to take place between her and the Duchess, at which the latter was to appear disguised, and was to reveal herself only after some conversation, the object of which was that terms might be proposed but her grace was duped for having changed her clothes to those of a man she waited at the appointed hour and place without seeing either mrs craddock or the person who had promised to effect the meeting and she afterwards learned that every particular of this business had been communicated to the prosecutors who instructed the letter carrier to pretend an acquiescence in the scheme thus baffled in a project which had a plausible appearance of success the only method left was the best possible arrangement of matters preparatory to the trial on the 15th day of april 1766 the business came on in westminster hall when the queen was present accompanied by the prince of wales princess royal and others of the royal family many foreign ambassadors also attended as well as several of the nobility these having taken their seats the duchess came forward attended by mrs edgerton mrs barrington and miss chudley three of the ladies of her bedchamber, and her chaplain, physician, and apothecary, and as she approached the bar she made three reverences, and then dropped on her knees, when the Lord High Steward said, Madam, you may rise. Having risen, she courtesied to the Lord High Steward, and the House of Peers, and her compliments were returned. Proclamation being made for silence, the Lord High Steward mentioned to the prisoner the fatal consequences attending the crime of which she stood indicted, signifying that, however alarming and awful her present circumstances, she might derive great consolation from considering that she was to be tried by the most liberal, candid, and august assembly in the universe. The Duchess then read a paper, setting forth that she was guiltless of the offence alleged against her, and that the agitation of her mind arose not from the consciousness of guilt, but from the painful circumstance of being called before so awful a tribunal on a criminal accusation she begged therefore that if she was deficient in the observance of any ceremonial points her failure might not be understood as proceeding from wilful disrespect but should be attributed to the unfortunate peculiarity of her situation it was added that she had travelled from rome in so dangerous a state of health that it was necessary for her to be conveyed in a litter and that she was perfectly satisfied that she should have a fair trial since the determination respecting her cause on which materially depended her honour and fortune would proceed from the most unprejudiced and august assembly in the world the lord high steward then desired the lady to give attention while she was arraigned on an indictment for bigamy and proclamation for silence having been again made the duchess who had been permitted to sit arose and read a paper representing to the court that she was advised by her counsel to plead the sentence of the ecclesiastical court in the year 1769, as a bar to her being tried on the present indictment. The Lord High Steward informed her that she must plead to the indictment, in consequence of which she was arraigned, and being asked by the clerk of the Crown whether she was guilty of the felony with which she stood charged, she answered with great firmness, Not guilty, my lords. The clerk of the Crown, then asking her how she should be tried, she said, "'By God and my peers,' on which the clerk said, "'God send your ladyship a good deliverance.' Four days were occupied in arguments of counsel, respecting the admission or rejection of a sentence of the spiritual court, but the peers having decided that it could not be admitted, the trial proceeded. The first witness examined was Anne Craddock, whose testimony was as follows— I have known Her Grace the Duchess of Kingston ever since the year 1742, at which time she came on a visit to the house of Mr. Merrill at Laneston in Hampshire, during the Winchester races. At that time I lived in the service of Mrs. Hanmer, Miss Chudley's aunt, who was then on a visit at Mr. Merrill's, where Mr. Hervey and Miss Chudley first met, and soon conceived a mutual attachment for each other. They were privately married one evening at about eleven o'clock in Laneston Church, in the presence of Mr. Mountney, Mrs. Hanmer, the Reverend Mr. Ames, the Rector, who performed the ceremony, and myself. I was ordered out of the church to entice Mr. Merrill's servants out of the way. I saw the bride and bridegroom put to bed together, and Mrs. Hanmer obliged them to rise again. They went to bed together the following night." In a few days Mr. Hervey was under the necessity of going to Portsmouth in order to join Sir John Danvers' fleet, in which he was then a lieutenant, and being ordered to call him at five o'clock in the morning, I went into the bedchamber at the appointed hour, and found him and his lady sleeping in bed together. I was unwilling to disturb them, as I thought that the delay of an hour or two would make no difference, but they afterwards parted, my husband to whom I was not then married accompanied Mr. Hervey in the capacity of a servant. When Mr. Hervey returned from the Mediterranean, he and his lady lived together, and I then thought that she was pregnant. Some months after Mr. Hervey went again to sea, and during his absence I was informed that the lady was brought to bed, and I was afterwards confirmed in the information by the lady herself, who said that she had a little boy at nurse, whose features greatly resembled those of Mr. Hervey. In answer to questions put by the Duke of Grafton, the witness said that she had never seen the child, that it was dark when the marriage took place in the church, and that Mr. Mountney carried a wax light attached to the crown of his hat. Upon being asked by the Earl of Hillsborough whether she had not received a letter containing some offer to induce her to appear now as a witness, she admitted that Mr. Fossard of Piccadilly had written to her, offering her a sinecure place on condition of her coming forward, to give evidence against her grace, and stating that she might, if she pleased, exhibit the letter to the Earl of Bristol. The cross-examination of the witness on this point was continued during the remainder of the sitting of the Lordships, and on the following day, the 20th of April, it was resumed, the earls of derby hillsborough and buckinghamshire questioning her with considerable acumen she at length confessed that pecuniary offers had been made to her to induce her to appear and that she had acceded to the terms proposed mrs sophia Pettyplace was examined as to the facts deposed by mrs craddock but she was able to afford no positive information upon the subject she lived with her grace at the time of the supposed marriage but was not present at the ceremony, and only believed that the Duchess had mentioned the circumstance to her. Caesar Hawkins, Esquire, deposed that he had been acquainted with the Duchess several years, he believed not less than thirty. He had heard of a marriage between Mr. Hervey and the lady at the bar, which circumstance was afterwards mentioned to him by both parties, previous to Mr. Hervey's last going to sea. By the desire of her grace, he was in the room when the issue of the marriage was born, and once saw the child. He was sent for by Mr. Hervey soon after his return from sea, and desired by him to wait upon the lady, with proposals for procuring a divorce, which he accordingly did, when Her Grace declared herself absolutely determined against listening to such terms, and he knew that many messages passed on the subject. Her Grace some time after informed him, at his own house, that she had instituted a jactitation suit against Mr. Hervey in Doctors Commons, on another visit she appeared very grave, and desiring him to retire into another apartment, said she was exceedingly unhappy, in consequence of an oath which she had long dreaded, having been tendered to her at doctor's commons, to disavow her marriage, which she would not do for ten thousand worlds. Upon another visit, a short time after, she informed him that a sentence had passed in her favour at doctor's commons, which would be irrevocable unless Mr. Hervey pursued certain measures within a limited time, which she did not apprehend he would do. Hereupon he inquired how she got over the oath, and her reply was, that the circumstance of her marriage was so blended with falsities, that she could easily reconcile the matter to her conscience, since the ceremony was a business of so scrambling and shabby a nature, that she could as safely swear she was not as that she was married. Judith Phillips, being called, swore that she was the widow of the Reverend Mr. Ames, that she remembered when her late husband performed the marriage ceremony between Mr. Hervey and the prisoner, that she was not present, but derived her information from her husband, that sometime after the marriage the lady desired her to prevail upon her husband to grant a certificate, which she said she believed her husband would not refuse, that Mr. Merrill, who accompanied the lady, advised her to consult his attorney from Worcester, that in compliance with the attorney's advice a register book was purchased and the marriage inserted therein with some late burials in the parish the book was here produced and the witness swore to the writing of her late husband the writing of the reverend mr ames was also proved by the reverend mr inchin and the reverend mr dennis and the entry of a caveat to the duke's will was proved by a clerk from doctors commons the book in which the marriage of the Duke of Kingston with the lady at the bar was registered on the eighth of March seventeen sixty nine was produced by the rev mr Trebek of st Margaret's westminster and the rev mr Samuel Harper of the British Museum swore that he performed the marriage ceremony between the parties on the day mentioned in the books produced by mr Trebek Monday the twenty second of april after the attorney-general had declared the evidence on behalf of the prosecution to be concluded the Lord High Steward called upon the prisoner for her defence, which she read, and the following are the most material arguments it contained, to invalidate the evidence adduced for the prosecutor. She appealed to the searcher of all hearts that she never considered herself as legally married to Mr. Hervey. She said that she considered herself as a single woman, and as such was addressed by the late Duke of Kingston and that, influenced by a legitimate attachment to his grace, she instituted a suit in the ecclesiastical court, when her supposed marriage with Mr. Hervey was declared null and void. But anxious for every conscientious as well as legal sanction, she submitted an authentic statement of her case to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who, in the most decisive and unreserved manner, declared that she was at liberty to marry and afterwards granted, and delivered to Dr. Collier, a special licence for her marriage with the late Duke of Kingston. She said that on her marriage, she experienced every mark of gracious esteem from their Majesties, and her late Royal Mistress, the Prince Dowager of Wales, and was publicly recognised as Duchess of Kingston. Under such respectable sanctions and virtuous motives for the conduct she pursued, Strengthened by a decision that had been esteemed conclusive and irrevocable for the space of seven centuries, if their lordship should deem her guilty on any rigid principle of law, she hoped, nay, she was conscious, they would attribute her failure as proceeding from a mistaken judgment and erroneous advice, and would not censor her for intentional guilt. She bestowed the highest ecumenums on the deceased duke, and solemnly assured the court that she had in no one instance abused her ascendancy over him, and that so far from endeavouring to engross his possessions she had declared herself amply provided for by that fortune for life which he was extremely anxious to bequeath to her in perpetuity. As to the neglect of the Duke's eldest nephew, she said it was entirely the consequence of his disrespectful behaviour to her, and she was not dissatisfied at a preference to another nephew, whose respect and attention to her had been such as the Duke judged to be her due on her advancement to the honour being the wife of his grace. The Lord High Steward then desired Mr. Wallace to proceed with the evidence on behalf of the Duchess. The advocate stated the nature of the evidence he meant to produce, to prove that Anne Craddock had asserted to different people that she had no recollection of the marriage between Mr. Hervey and the lady at the bar, and that she placed a reliance on a promise of having a provision made for her in consequence of the evidence she was to give on the present trial, and to invalidate the depositions of Judith Phillips, he ordered the clerk to read a letter, wherein she supplicated her grace to exert her influence to prevent her husband's discharge from the Duke's service, and observed that Mrs. Phillips had, on the preceding day, sworn that her husband was not dismissed, but voluntarily quitted his station in the household of his grace. Mr. Wallace called Mr. Barclay, Lord Bristol's attorney, who said his lordship told him he was desirous of obtaining a divorce, and directed him to Anne Craddock, saying she was the only person, then living, who was present at his marriage, and that a short time previous to the commencement of the jactitation suit, he waited upon Anne Craddock, who informed him that her memory was bad, and that she could remember nothing perfectly in relation to the marriage, which must have been a long time before." Anne Pritchard deposed, that about three months before she had been informed by Mrs. Craddock that she expected to be provided for soon after the trial, and that she expected to be enabled to procure a place in the custom-house for one of her relations. This being the whole of the evidence to be produced on behalf of Her Grace, the Lord High Steward addressed their lordships, saying that the evidence on both sides having been heard, it now became their lordship's duty to proceed to the consideration of the case, that the importance and solemnity of the occasion required that they should severally pronounce their opinions in the absence of the prisoner at the bar and that it was for the junior baron to speak first the prisoner having then been removed their lordships declared that they found her guilty of the offence imputed to her proclamation was then made that the usher of the black rod should replace the prisoner at the bar and immediately on her appearing the Lord High Stewardum informed her that the Lords had maturely considered the evidence adduced against her, as well as the testimony of the witnesses who had been called on her behalf, and that they had pronounced her guilty of the felony for which she was indicted. He then inquired whether she had anything to say why judgment should not be pronounced against her. The Duchess immediately handed in a paper containing the words, I plead the privilege of the peerage which were read by the clerk at the table. The Lord High Steward then informed Her Grace that the Lords had considered the plea, and agreed to allow it, adding, Madam, you will be discharged on paying the usual fees. The Duchess during the trial appeared to be perfectly collected, but on sentence being pronounced, she fainted, and was carried out of court. This solemnity was concluded on the 22nd of April, 1776, but the prosecutors still had a plan in embryo to confine the person of the Countess of Bristol, for to this rank she was now again reduced to the kingdom, and to deprive her of her personal property, and a writ of ne exiat regno was actually in the course of preparation, but private notice being conveyed to her of this circumstance, she was advised immediately to quit the country. In order to conceal her flight, she caused her carriage to be driven publicly through the streets, and invited a large party to dine at her house, but without waiting to apologise to her guests, she drove to Dover in a post-chaise, and there entering a boat with Mr. Harvey, the captain of her yacht, she accompanied him to Calais. Circumstances of which she had been advised, and which had occurred during the period of her absence from Rome, rendered her immediate presence in that city necessary, and proceeding thither without loss of time, she found that a Spanish friar whom she had left in charge of her palace and furniture, had found means to convert her property into money, and after having seduced a young English girl, who had also been left in the palace, had absconded. Having now obtained the whole of her plate from the public bank where she had deposited it, she returned to Calais, which she adopted as the best place at which she could fix her residence, in consequence of the expeditious communication which existed between that town and London by means of which she might be afforded the earliest intelligence of the proceedings of her opponents. Their business was now to set aside, if possible, the will of the Duke of Kingston. There was no probability of the success of the attempt, but there was sufficient doubt upon the subject in the mind of the Countess to keep all her apprehensions alive. The will of His Grace of Kingston, however, received every confirmation which the courts of justice could give and the object of the countess now was to dissipate rather than expend the income of his estates a house which she had purchased in calais was not sufficient for her purpose a mansion at montmartre near paris was fixed on and the purchase of it was negotiated in as short a time as the duchess could desire there were only a few obstacles to enjoyment which were not considered until the purchase was completed the house was in so ruinous a condition as to be in momentary danger of falling the land was more like a field of the slothful than the vineyard of the industrious, and these evils were not perceived by the Countess till she was in possession of her wishes. A lawsuit with the owner of the estate was the consequence, and the Countess went to St. Petersburg, and there turned brandy distiller, and returned to Paris before it was concluded. The possession of such a place, however, was not sufficient for the Countess, and she proceeded to make a second purchase of a house, built upon a scale of infinite grandeur. The brother of the existing French king was the owner of a domain, suited in every respect for the residence of a person of such nobility, and the countess determined to become its mistress. It was called the Territory of Saint-Assise, and was situated at a pleasant distance from Paris, abounding in game of all descriptions, and rich in all the luxuriant embellishments of nature. The mansion was of a size which rendered it fit for the occupation of a king. It contained three hundred beds. The value of such an estate was too considerable to be expected in one payment. She therefore agreed to discharge the whole of the sum demanded, which was £55,000, by instalments. The purchase on the part of the Countess was a good one. It afforded not only game, but rabbits in plenty, and finding them of superior quality and flavour, her ladyship, during the first week of her possession, had as many killed and sold as bought her three hundred guineas. At St. Petersburg she had been a distiller of brandy. And now at Paris she turned rabbit merchant. Such was her situation when, one day, while she was at dinner, her servants received the intelligence that judgment respecting the house near Paris had been awarded against her. The sudden communication of the news produced an agitation of her whole frame. She flew into a violent passion, and burst an internal blood-vessel. But she appeared to have surmounted even this, until a few days afterwards, when preparing to rise from her bed, a servant who had long been with her endeavoured to dissuade her from her purpose. The countess said, "'I am not very well, but I will rise,' and on a remonstrance being attempted, she said, "'At your peril disobey me. I will get up and walk about the room. Ring for the secretary to assist me.' She was obeyed, dressed, and the secretary entered the chamber. The countess then walked about, complained of thirst, and said, "'I could drink a glass of my fine Madeira, and eat a slice of toasted bread.' I shall be quite well afterwards, but let it be a large glass of wine." The attendant reluctantly brought, and the countess drank, the wine. She then said, "'I am perfectly recovered. I knew the Madeira would do me good. My heart feels oddly. I will have another glass.' The servant here observed that such a quantity of wine in the morning might intoxicate rather than benefit. The countess persisted in her orders and the second glass of Madeira being produced, she drank that also, and pronounced herself to be charmingly indeed. She then walked a little about the room, and afterwards said, I will lie down on the couch, I can sleep, and after that I shall be entirely recovered. She seated herself on the couch, a female having hold of each hand. In this situation, she soon appeared to have fallen into a sound sleep, until the women felt her hands colder than ordinary, and she was found to have expired." She died August twenty sixth seventeen ninety six. End of part thirty five.